The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Morning. My name is Andrew Martin. I am the youth pastor here at Christ the King. And it's my privilege uh, to be here worshiping the Lord uh, with you together this morning. We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Romans. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And that passage will also be displayed on the, on the screens above you as well. Well, the crowd burst into ecstatic cheering as the young football player rolled to his feet after rushing the opposing quarterback and tackling him to the ground. And as the roar of the crowd filled the stadium, his teammates swarmed around and hoisted him onto their shoulders and carried him off the field. Now only a moment before, the crowd had been chanting this player's name. Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. And now they rejoiced in what he had just accomplished. Now most of us would rejoice any time our team tackled the other team's quarterback. You see, uh, but if you have seen the movie Rudy, you know just how special that tackle truly was. Because you see, as the movie builds up to this final scene, we watch the story of all the struggles Rudy had overcome just to step onto that field. He had wrestled with grades uh, before being admitted as a student to the University of Notre Dame. Once there, his small size had presented incredible challenges as he attempted to walk onto the team and was pummeled by the massive Division I football players. And after earning the respect of his teammates and the coaching staff, a new head coach had arrived and made it crystal clear that Rudy would never step onto that field on his watch. Knowing the details of the story leading up to that tackle are so important because they deepen our joy and appreciation for that tackle by showing us all of the hardships that Rudy had overcome and accomplished. Y'all, Paul is doing a similar thing in this passage today. You see, last week uh, we read of the incredible way that Jesus has restored, has reconciled our relationship with God through his sacrifice on the cross. And this week he continues to broaden and deepen our wonder and amazement at what Jesus' act of reconciliation has accomplished. How Jesus has overcome the greatest tragedy and the greatest problem in human history. And so with excited anticipation, let's, let's get ready to rejoice in Jesus' work of reconciliation after diving into the wonder of this passage together. Please follow along as we read Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, how much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded 
for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. Uh, thank you for showing us uh, what is true. Thank you for showing us our reality. And we ask, Lord, that we would receive this truth from you with open hearts so that we can respond to it the way you desire for us to respond. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have all experienced moments that are stressful and weighty. Uh, but there are few moments that are as weighty as waiting for a judge to pronounce the punishment for a crime. Uh, many of us have seen movies and shows uh, where this happens. And some of us may have sat in an actual courtroom and watched as a judge announced the punishment for a guilty prisoner who had been condemned. But none of us, none of us would ever want to be the one standing to face the judge because we were the guilty ones about to be condemned to punishment for our crimes. But although none of us would ever want this to be true about us, this passage shows us that this is what has been true for all of us and what may still be true for some of us sitting here today. See, this passage shows us that all people are born guilty of wrongdoing and condemned to eternal death and punishment. Look with me in verse 12 and, and let's work our way backwards through this verse. See, at the very end of verse 12, it says, all sinned. This means all people are guilty of wrongdoing. And right before that, it says, death spread to all because all sinned. And some, what it's saying is that all people sinned and are subject to death as a result. How in the world did this happen? As we continue to work backwards through verse 12, we see death came into the world through sin as the punishment for sin. And that it was one man who committed this sin, this wrongdoing that led to death. Verse 14 later will clarify that this one man was named Adam. And so some of us are probably wondering, well, who is Adam and what in the world did he do wrong? Well, this uh, verse 12 is referring to the true story written in the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. If you are unfamiliar with the story, here's a very brief summary. The first book of the Bible is titled Genesis. And the first two chapters of Genesis, they tell the story of how God created the world and the first human beings, Adam and Eve. It's a beautiful story. But it soon takes a dark turn. Because Genesis chapter 3 goes on to tell of how Adam sinned. Adam did what was wrong, 
by disobeying a command that God had given him. A command not to eat fruit from a special tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam's sin, his wrongdoing, this earned the penalty of death, both spiritual and physical. Now, this is a, a very brief synopsis. And if this is the first time you've heard the story, let me encourage you. There are Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you. Take one of those home and, and open it up to the very beginning, to, to Genesis, and just start reading. You will get to the story in about five to ten minutes. But to bring us back to our passage this morning, we can summarize verse 12 like this. Adam sinned. He did what was wrong. Death came as the penalty. And all people, not just Adam, are subject to death because all people, not just Adam, but all people sinned. Now, you, you may be thinking, well, wait a minute. I, I see Adam sin, but what did we or what did I do wrong to deserve death? Well, to answer this, we need to understand that when verse 12 says all sinned, it is referring to Adam's first sin in Genesis chapter 3. In other words, verse 12 is telling us that when Adam sinned, we all sinned too. And we see this throughout the passage, including in verse 19. Take a look with me at verse 19. It says, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. In other words, when Adam sinned, all people, the whole of humanity, became guilty of Adam's sin. Now, Christians, we, we use a very important term to help describe this reality. We use the word imputation. Now, that may sound like a bizarre word, uh, but its meaning, the concept that it expresses, is actually familiar to all of us. It's basically shorthand for saying, to credit to an account. So Paul is saying that Adam's sin was imputed to us, that it was credited to our account so that we are all born guilty of sin. Now you may wonder, well, why has Adam's sin been imputed, been credited to my account? I don't want that on there. Well, when verse 12 tells us that we all sinned in Adam, that his sin was imputed to us, that it was credited to our account, it is telling us that God made it so that Adam represented all human descendants which is everyone who has ever lived, including you and me. And that he represented us in such a way that his failure was our failure as well. This is what Christians mean when we use the term federal headship. It's the truth that Adam represented all humanity, that he was our federal head so that his actions affected all of us. Now we may hear this and then be a little confused by verse 13. Take a look with me at verse 13. It says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Well, Paul is referring to the law that God gave Moses after Israel left Egypt in the Old Testament. And in this verse, Paul says that sin continued to be in the world even before this formal set of commands at Mount Sinai was given to Moses. But what does he mean by this term, sin is not counted where there is no law? I mean, it almost sounds like he's contradicting himself a little bit. Like, there's sin, but there's not sin. Well, what we, what we need to know is that it's, it's not a contradiction. And here's why. Because in Romans chapter 2, Paul has told us already that even people without the formal written law in their hands or before them, that, these, that all of people are still held accountable for sin. So when Paul says sin is not counted, he's not saying people were blameless between the time of Adam and Moses. Rather, what he's saying is that they had not received a full accounting for their guilt and for their sin. They hadn't gotten the detailed bill 
for their blame, as one commentator puts it. And this ongoing guilt, this ongoing blame is clear in verse 14 where it says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even though their transgression was different from Adam because they hadn't broken a specific command like he did, they were still guilty and under death. Now, I'm going to step back for a second. We have, we have covered a lot of ground so far. So let me summarize what, we, what we've covered up to this point. This passage is teaching us that all people are born guilty of wrongdoing and condemned to eternal death and punishment. Because God made Adam to be our federal head, to be our representative. And when he sinned, his sin was imputed to us. It was credited to our account. So that we also were born guilty of sin and subject to the penalty of death. That's a lot to cover and that's pretty heavy. And I imagine that many of us may object or, or even recoil at this truth for a number of reasons. Uh, for starters, some of us may object to this. We may object to this because we actually don't believe Adam ever really existed. Uh, perhaps we think of Adam more as like a myth or, or perhaps at best a metaphor. Uh, in other words, we think Adam couldn't possibly represent us because he wasn't even real. But here's the thing. When the Bible talks about Adam, the Bible clearly describes Adam as a real man from human history. And Jesus actually does this as one example in Matthew chapter 24 when he speaks of Adam as a real man, when he describes Adam and Eve as the first married couple in human history. But others may object to this truth for another reason. We may object to this truth because to our minds this doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that we should be held responsible for something that Adam did, especially, especially when we didn't even get to vote on whether Adam would be our representative. Well, y'all, without a doubt, this can be a tough truth to struggle with. I get it. But pastor and seminary professor Tim Keller, he gives us a few vital insights uh, to help as we seek to come to grips with this truth. First, when we object to Adam being our federal head, what we are saying is that we could have chosen a better representative than Adam or that we could have represented ourselves better than he did. And it makes sense that we might go there, but let me, let me tell you, be very careful when you start thinking that way because here's what's happening. When we say that we could have chosen or been a better representative, we're saying that we could have done a better job than God. And here's why we're saying that. It was God who created Adam, and it was God who chose Adam to be our representative. And friends, you might not want to hear this, and sometimes I don't want to hear it either, but none of us is better or wiser or more good and holy than the Lord of heaven and earth. Here's the other thing, as we let that sink in, which I'm going to need a lifetime <laughs> with my pride and arrogance and sin. But here's the second thing. Let's also remember that we live in a culture that prizes individualism. And so it's vital that we stop and ask ourselves some hard and honest questions. And one of the questions we need to ask is this. Is our thinking being shaped more by our culture or more by the truth of Scripture? And if any of you all would like to discuss this further, I'd be very glad to do that with you after the service or Maybe we can set up a time later this week, but, but for now, for today, and for every day, let us humbly submit ourselves to God and humbly accept this truth that he gives us in his word. 
And recognizing this truth leads to a a deeper sense of thanks at what Jesus' act of reconciliation has accomplished. Look with me back in verse 14. There at the end of verse 14, we learn that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. When it says that Adam was a type, it's another way of saying that Adam prefigured, that he, that he foreshadowed another man who would come later. And he was a type. He foreshadowed this future man and that the way Adam's action affected the lives of those he represented as their federal head foreshadowed the way another future man's actions would affect the people he represented as their federal head. Dr. Dan Doriani summarizes it this way. By establishing that one man's action can harm so many, Paul also establishes that one person, Jesus, can bring immense good to many. In other words, Adam's action as our federal head is not the end of the story. We can belong to another federal head whose work on our behalf can do something amazing in our lives. And verse 15 through 21 make crystal clear that Jesus is the federal head. Jesus is the representative that Adam foreshadowed. But Paul goes on to show that while Adam foreshadowed Jesus, Jesus is very different from Adam. And we see this clearly in verses 15 through 16. At the beginning of both verses, Paul uses the phrase, the free gift is not like. And he uses that that term, not like, to emphasize the difference. Well, what are some of these vital differences? Well, first, take a look at verse 16. It says, Adam's sin led to condemnation. In verse 15, again, it describes that Adam's sin led to death for all humanity. And when we see in verse 17, take a look at the language it uses to describe this relationship to death. It says that death reigned. It's saying that death ruled over all humanity, that all are born slaves to the cruel tyrant of death. But the work of Jesus brings the exact opposite of all these things. See, in verse 16, rather than condemnation, Jesus brings justification. That's a lot of syllables, but it's a very important word. This word justification means that Jesus clears his people of their guilt. In other words, when you are justified, rather than standing before the judge in a courtroom and having that judge bring the gavel down saying, guilty and sentenced to death, When you have been justified, the pronouncement instead is you are free and you are innocent. That is what Jesus brings. And in verse 17, rather than being slaves to death, Jesus' people now reign in life. Now these are just a few of the life-giving differences between Adam and Jesus. But let's look at verses 18 through 19 to see the vital similarity between these two men. Two key words, the two key words to see in both of these verses are as and so. So pay attention for these words. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In these verses, the words as and so are saying that just as Adam's status was imputed to all of us, so will Jesus' status be imputed, will be credited to the account of those who belong to him. 
So just as Adam's disobedience as the federal head brought condemnation and sin and death on humanity, Jesus' obedience as the Christian's federal head is credited to our account. It brings righteousness so that we are no longer under the penalty of death but are given life instead. But take a deep breath for me, not because we're going to pause, but because I actually want us to go a little bit deeper <laughs> into, into how amazing this all truly is. Take a look at verse 16. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Paul is saying that Jesus' free gift comes after many trespasses. You see, we, we are guilty of sin in Adam, and we also commit plenty of sins ourselves. So do you hear what he's saying? He's saying God didn't just respond to the one sin of Adam and forgive that, although that would have been merciful and gracious in itself. He's saying God actually goes beyond that. God responds with incredible mercy to an avalanche of sins. God's grace has abounded, giving his people so much better than we deserve. And we see this grace at play again in verse 20. Look with me there at the beginning. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. This means that, that the law made sin even more serious and that now people were willfully rebelling against God. They saw his commands, they knew what he wanted, and basically looked him in the eye and pointed their finger and said, I don't think so. But if we look at the second half of verse 20, it says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Tim Keller puts it beautifully. He says, sin did not have the last word. We do not have to die in Adam. God's grace to humanity is greater than humanity's rebellion against God. And Jesus made this all possible by living a perfect life of obedience in our place. And this obedience included going to the cross to pay the price for our sins and rising again so that we might receive this free gift of righteousness. Jesus rescues his people from sin and death and gives them eternal life. Jesus overcomes the greatest tragedy and the biggest problem in human history. Now, if this is true, and it is, what do we do? Well, that's going to depend. It's going to depend on whether we are here today represented by Adam or represented by Jesus. You see, it could be easy to misunderstand this passage and think that Jesus automatically represents and rescues all people. I mean, that seems to be what it's saying in verse 18, right? Let's look at verse 18 again. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. But, but if we read our Bibles well, we know that Paul doesn't mean that all people will be saved. In Matthew 24, Jesus himself says that there will be people who die in their sin and suffer eternal punishment. And Paul makes, him, makes this clear in this passage as well. Look at verse 17 again. It says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Those who receive the free gift will live. Another way of saying it is he brings life to all men who receive this gift. 
What this also means, though, is that those who have not received this gift will die. And that is a very sobering thing to face. Uh, many years ago, I, I heard the story uh, from the life of former Secretary of State Colin Powell. Uh, many of you uh, probably know of this honored leader who served as a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and later as a Secretary of State uh, for this country. But earlier in his military career, uh, at the time, he was Captain Powell. And Captain Powell was trained as a paratrooper. Well, one day, he and his men went out to do a training jump. And as they were airborne and approaching the drop zone where they were going to exit uh, the airplane, where they were going to jump out, Captain Powell went through and checked each man's parachute line to make sure that it was working properly. And as he made his check, he discovered that one of his sergeant's lines was not properly hooked up. And so he grabbed the unattached hook and he held it in the sergeant's face, whose eyes got as big as dinner plates with terror as he realized that if Captain Powell had not shown him the state of his parachute line, that he would have gone out of that aircraft and most likely plummeted to his death. Captain Powell showed this young sergeant what was true. His line was unattached. And in response, this young sergeant had no doubt what he must do to live. Attach his line. Well, friends, if you are sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, this passage is doing the same thing for you that Captain Powell did for that sergeant. This passage is showing you what is true. It is showing you that if you have not received the free gift of life from Jesus, that you are still under Adam. You are still guilty of sin, and you will die in your sin and suffer eternal punishment. But it doesn't have to be this way. Because Paul shows us the truth that if you receive this gift, Jesus will bring you out from death and into life. How do you receive this gift? Believe. Believe in Jesus. Trust him as your savior for the forgiveness of sins and for his righteousness. That is how you receive this gift. You believe. And if you are here today as a believer in Jesus, he is your representative. You are one who has received his gift. Well, our response should be something like this. This true word should cause us to respond with deeper wonder and amazement for what Jesus has done. It's so easy to yawn it off sometimes. This should shake us out of our apathy. It should show us that in reconciling us to God through his, sacrificial, through his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus has reversed our situation in Adam. He has rescued us from slavery to death. He has given us eternal life. In other words, Jesus has overcome our greatest problem. And may knowing what is true cause us to respond to Jesus with a deeper love for Jesus and a desire to express that love by living righteously, by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you, uh, you are loving enough to show us what is true, even when it's hard to hear. Thank you that you don't turn a blind eye to our problem or just leave us in our sin, but you come and you show us the problem and you, you, you overcome that problem. You provide the solution through your son, Jesus, who represented your people. Lord, I pray that if there are those here today who do not yet know and believe in Jesus, Lord, that they would. 
and they would be brought into the good and abundant life that you offer them freely. And Lord, I also pray that for those of us who are believing in Jesus, Lord, help us, help us to, to love you more and help us to walk more closely to you because we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.